From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Midlife is a time of change for women as they enter menopause. One of the most dangerous changes is weight gain, especially in the midsection. On today's program, we'll hear the latest recommendations for women in midlife fighting the battle of the bulge. So a lot of women will come in our offices and say, hey, doc, I haven't changed a thing. I'm eating mm. the same way. I'm exercising the same amount and I'm gaining weight. Well, the answer to such women is that if you don't change anything, you will gain weight because you have to take that extra step to be able to maintain your weight as you enter these midlife years. Also on the program, we'll discuss the growing problem of antibiotic resistance. And the connection between health behaviors and good grades for high school students. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. One of the most common problems for women as they age is gaining weight. Tracy, you better read this. <laughs> Tread carefully. Tread <laughs> right. very lightly here, Dr. Shives. I didn't say that. All right. One of the most common problems for women as they age is gaining weight. On average, women in their 50s and 60s gain a pound and a half per year. Hot flashes, sleep disturbances, and mood changes can disrupt an otherwise healthy lifestyle. A recent study at Mayo Clinic published last month in Mayo Clinic Proceedings looked at the risks and the challenges of weight gain for women in midlife, and that led researchers to develop a series of recommendations. Here to talk about it is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist, in lay terms, she's a hormone doctor, and lead author of the study, Dr. Ekta Kapoor. Dr. Kapoor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. I've never been more interested in an interview in my entire life. (laughs) It won't happen to you, Tracy. Well, tell us about the study. First of all, how many women did you study? So this is actually a review of the current literature, whatever we have out there on weight gain, the pathophysiology meaning, what are the causes, what are the unique influences that cause midlife women to gain weight. And when I say midlife women, I really mean women who are in their 40s and 50s, so 40 to 60 years age group. So what is it that causes them to gain weight beyond what happens in the general population and what effective strategies and unique strategies we should have in place to manage these women. So that's kind of what triggered. So we essentially reviewed all the literature that's out there and laid out some recommendations. Were you talking, did you look at uh, women once they reached menopause or women in the few years before or perimenopausal? And, And define those terms for us, perimenopause. Sure. So perimenopause is the few years that lead up to menopause. And menopause, in a sense, is defined after the fact because it is once a woman has had her last menstrual period, that then she's in menopause. But there is no way of knowing it when the woman is having the last period that this is the last one. So you always define it after the fact. So when a year, when a woman has gone one year after having her last menstrual period, she's said to be in menopause. So the few years, and that can be very variable, that lead up to menopause, are defined as perimenopausal years. So the way we define it in our clinical world, when a woman starts having menstrual irregularity, so more often in their late 40s, although some women start experiencing it earlier, but that's kind of the perimenopausal period. And that's oftentimes the period when women have a lot of symptoms of menopause, so the hot flashes, 
etc. Etc. I'm trying to just have a straight face with this whole thing. <laughs> I want to sit back and go preach it, sister. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the perimenopausal part—it sounds like a wonderful time, doesn't it? It's just a joyful. It's terrible. It it's is. terrible. It is. Uh, there are so many things, like you mentioned, the hot flashes, the emotional issues that go mm-hmm. along with it. There's a lot of different issues, but this study was specifically about weight gain. Mm-hmm. Why do women? gain weight when they're going through perimenopause and into menopause. Sure. So, you know, as we've said in detail in the article that all of us, regardless of sex, are predisposed to weight gain as we age. And that has to do with hormonal changes and that impact our muscle mass and how we uh, use up the energy. But women in particular are exposed to these unique influences as they're going through menopause, some of which you pointed out, Tracy. So having hot flashes, not sleeping well at night, having mood problems. I mean, who wouldn't be thrown off gear and off track and not able to adhere to healthy lifestyle yeah. measures. The, so, the only solution for that, Dr. Shives, is Cheetos. Did you know that? <laughs> the only solution. Yeah. There you go, because food is a known comfort measure. And if you can't find comfort and solace anywhere else, many people will resort to eating and they don't want to exercise. And That's right. You know. so, so it's it, not just eating more and exercising less. There's there's something else going on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So there are these are physiological changes. So, you know, as we age, we lose muscle mass. And the declining estrogen levels after menopause also contribute somewhat to that. Also, as we are aging, we're losing the male uh, or the levels of the male hormone testosterone, which we... Well, no wonder you guys are having such a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So even those levels are going down. So we lose muscle mass. So our body is burning fewer calories. So the rules of the game change. So a lot of women will come in our offices and say, hey, doc, I haven't changed a thing. I'm eating the same way. I'm exercising the same amount and I'm gaining weight. Well, the answer to such women is that if you don't change anything, you will gain weight because you have to take that extra step to be able to maintain your weight as you enter these midlife years. You've got to kick up your game. Yes. And now much. we have been very kind because we've just been talking about weight gain. And our producer, Jen, in our scripts here, she calls it midsection weight gain. I know. That's very <laughs> kind. It's hard. For, she left the room because she doesn't even want to be here for this. <laughs> Define midsection. Well, for this us. is my question. <laughs> Why is it that when you go through perimenopause and menopause, why is it that the weight gain is concentrated in your pot belly? Exactly. See, that is the most devastating part to women, not only from a cosmetic standpoint, but from a health standpoint also. So by midsection, it means that women are depositing all that extra fat they're gaining, preferentially in the abdominal area. So it's in the fat that's right under your skin, plus around your internal organs. And that is a direct effect of lack of estrogen, because estrogen affects how your body metabolizes fat and where fat is stored. What are the risks of having excess belly fat. I've been, I mean, I've been hearing for the truck driving men and the mm-hmm. pot, don't, you don't want to have pot bellies, gentlemen, mm-hmm. but what are the risks of that? Well, there are tremendous risks to having more fat in the abdominal area. So, you know, having high blood pressure, which again, women in the postmenopausal years are more predisposed to having high blood sugar, heart disease, which is number one killer of postmenopausal women. As you know, women before they hit menopause, the risk of heart disease is pretty low and then it just skyrockets after menopause and a, a lot of it has to do 
with this abdominal obesity then risk of certain cancers is higher if you have more abdominal obesity and yeah not to mention the cosmetic concern but yeah lots of health related concerns because of increased abdominal obesity let me just review again the the the, the health risks aside mm-hmm. from you women think it's cosmetically displeasing sometimes and men of course would never say no, never. that but uh, you said increased risk of high blood pressure heart disease and elevated blood sugar which mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. translates into diabetes, diabetes and certain cancers you increase your risk of certain mm-hmm. cancers if you uh, mm-hmm. become mm-hmm. more obese as you get older exactly. so all of those things exactly all right so we want to know how do you prevent that weight gain as you uh go through menopause. Exactly. I wish I had a magic solution there, but you know, ultimately it just boils down to positive lifestyle changes. So, you know, the way I look at it, once women receive education about it, you know, in our practice, and they learn that this is something almost to be expected, and one has to be proactive in order to prevent it, and not just doing what they've been doing in their younger years. And the statement that I use oftentimes is that the rules of the game have changed. So just like you said, Tracy, you just have to play harder, play a little different So women who enter menopause exercising more are more likely to maintain their weight as they go through menopause. So that psychological support, telling them that, you know, they have to adhere to healthier uh, eating habits and such. So it ultimately boils down to lifestyle. Yes, I mean, there are other ancillary support measures, including medications and such. But really, the core ingredient is positive lifestyle changes. Um, isn't Doesn't Mayo Clinic have a book coming out, a new book on menopause? It's already out, actually. Oh, it is? Mm-hmm. Okay, and what's it called? It's called the Mayo Clinic Menopause Book. All right. As and, simple uh, as that. Have you uh, reviewed con- it? Do you I, like I, it? I've contributed were you, to the you were, You're part I, I was, of it. I was part of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So for a woman who uh, doesn't necessarily want to sit down and talk about this with her uh, physician, this is a good book? It's, a, place uh, to it's, go? A, it's a comprehensive review of what to expect and what to do about things. There's a chapter for each menopausal issue. You've seen it? I've got my own copy. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right. We're uh, talking about uh, menopause and all that can potentially go wrong or all the difficulties, all the issues mm-hmm. that may come up Very with good. menopause with Dr. Ekta Kapoor. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about more menopausal issues, including hot flashes, hormone replacement therapy, and osteoporosis. Plus, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Yes, myth or matter of fact, the average age of menopause in America is 55 years old. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is an expert on menopause. Her name is Dr. Ekta Kapoor, and she's recently completed a study on problems of menopause with particular emphasis on the weight gain that some women experience as they get a little bit older. And it happens to come right around the middle. The main thing is we just had to up our game. Yeah, yeah up your game. <laughs> All right, myth or matter of fact. The average age of menopause in America is 55 years old. Dr. Kapoor, is that a myth or is that a fact? You're close, Tracy. I can kind of give it to you. The range is really 45 to 55, but the average age in this continent really is 51 years. 
And but that doesn't take into account the perimenopause. No. So no. when does that start? So like like I said that you know this is the initial the few years that lead up to menopause and perimenopause duration can be extremely variable. It can be one year, it can be seven, eight. So there is no average there, but it can last several years painfully. So yeah, <laughs> can be a long time, Dr. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other issues, and, and one I want to ask you about is, is hot flashes. Why mm-hmm. why do they happen, and what can women do about them? So that's a million-dollar question and a very loaded one, Dr. Shai. <laughs> I should have let Tracy ask that one. Yeah. I think this whole interview is loaded. You're doing a great job, Dr. Shai. <laughs> so I'll just it, listen. When it comes to hot flashes, we think it's because of dysregulation of the uh, temperature regulation system, very simply stated. But what exactly does it? We do not really know. It's due to some neurotransmitter changes in the higher brain centers. What, you know, science is just sort of unraveling now what a hot flash really means. Up until now, we just thought it was one of those nuisance symptoms of menopause that you either had to treat or you had to put up with. But new research now suggests that it has deeper connotations and it may have potentially different connotations for women who've just been through menopause versus women who are far into menopause and are older in their 60s and 70s. So to give you an example, we're now thinking that it is a marker of more widespread dysregulation in the body and maybe be a marker of heart disease, for example. Mm-hmm. So women who have worse heart flashes probably are at a higher risk for heart disease and therefore really? call for aggressive management of these symptoms. So definitely not something a woman is supposed to put up with. They have to be very aggressively managed. But I just want you to say that, say that stay tuned. The research is just coming out now to tell us what a hot flash can mean in addition to just being a symptom of menopause. Well, and it's weird because it comes and goes. Exactly. I can have hot flashes for a few weeks uh-huh. and then go half a year without it. Right. And you know, part of it, Tracy, is because of lifestyle triggers also. The big ones really there are smoking, alcohol, stress is another big one. Hmm. And go figure, how do you control your yeah. stress level, right? But that can be a big trigger for hot flashes. So how do you treat them? You, know, you talked about managing hot flashes, and, and so how do you do it? The most effective treatment out there for managing hot flashes is estrogen therapy. Now, with the big Women's Health Initiative study that came out in the early 2000s, hormone therapy was pretty much banished. But again, now, based on current research, we seem to have come a full circle, and there seems to be pretty uniform agreement among experts that estrogen therapy given to younger women who are, have just been through menopause, so they're in their 50s or within 10 years of menopause, not only does it effectively treat hot flashes, but in fact, it's a preventive strategy. And what all does it prevent? It prevents women from dying. It prevents heart disease. It prevents osteoporosis. So there is a good reason to be putting women on hormone therapy when they are recently menopausal. So in my practice, I look at reasons why a woman could not be on estrogen. So the default is to put her on estrogen as opposed to vice versa. Oh, no, wait, just one second. I I, got to ask you a question. I thought that we abandoned the use of hormone replacement therapy because it increased a woman's risk of heart disease. See, that's the thing. That's the irony there. Those data were a little bit skewed in the sense, Dr. Shai, the average age of the woman in that trial was 63 years. Now, when do we ever put a woman who's 63 years old, when do we ever start her on hormone therapy? The typical patient that gets started on hormone therapy is a woman in her late 40s or early 50s when she's having most symptoms. So we made the mistake of extrapolating the results of that one single study, which wasn't designed to answer this question. So yes, if you start a woman on hormone therapy, if she's in her 60s or 70s, her risk of heart disease does go up. But for the 
the young woman it actually prevents heart attacks and that's a fact that's not publicized enough wow no kidding but you are actually talking about lower dose hormone replacement therapy for a shorter period of time right not as, as cut not necessary not necessary that too is changing so previously the recommendation was once a woman turns 60 or 65 hormone therapy needs to stop the latest position statements from expert societies now say that it's a it's a matter of weighing risk versus benefit and you are not to use an age as a cut off for stopping hormone therapy This is why we have you. to we have to broadcast this show from the women's health clinic. I know. Always changing. We've mm-hmm. almost come full no, this, circle. This, this, It, exactly. It's very that, that's exactly right. Yeah. We have come full, full circle. Why is osteoporosis a concern during menopause? So, you know, estrogen is important for maintaining bone health. So, once a woman enters menopause in those initial 1 to 2 years, women can lose as much as 10% of their bone density. Now, that is huge. And then thereafter, unless they're on some kind of a treatment to prevent those losses, they can continue to lose 1 to 2% every year and that's huge it predisposes them to fractures mm-hmm. and as you know hip fractures are serious they take lives right so osteoporosis management is a serious business uh we have a question here from a listener named Stacy who mm-hmm. wants to know what is happening to my sex drive Oh yeah, let's that's, find that out for Stacy. That's another that's another loaded question right there. <laughs> well, Stacy wants to know, so go right ahead. <laughs> so a lot of there are a lot of uh, determinants that influence a woman's uh, sex drive as she is going through menopause. So the biggest influence, as I see it, are the changes of aging. A few minutes ago, I shared with you that we make the male des- hormone testosterone in much lower amounts than the men make it, but that is supposed to have a permissive effect on sexual functions. So as we are aging, our testosterone levels for women as for men too are going down that's one then the changes of menopause all these symptoms for a woman who's tired not sleeping well having mood problems you can imagine what happens to their sexual function plus changes of vaginal dryness and the pain with intercourse so you can imagine all these influences are pretty much breaks on a woman's sex drive so there is nothing on the gas pedal everything on the break pedal and throw on top of it things like relationship conflict and such when you've been in a marriage for these many years you know there are issues that come up hmm. right I'll, so. sh- i'll make sure to let her know that <laughs> are there so, any supplements that help women with menopausal symptoms not consistently so it, for one we don't have strong data regarding their effectiveness plus toxicity is always a concern mm-hmm. with supplements so no and you know my point being that when we have an effective medicine out there which has several other additional benefits every reason to put women on estrogen then deprive them of it we well, you know it's interesting you you talked about the benefits of hormone replacement therapy um and how much that's changed your recommendations have changed but you said it could help control hot flashes mm-hmm. um it could help prevent heart disease mm-hmm. uh it could prevent help prevent osteoporosis mm-hmm. does it do anything for libido what stacy wants to know yeah thanks <laughs> <laughs> it can potentially improve libido specifically for women who are having a lot of menopausal symptoms by making them better but i can say that for a woman who's not having any menopausal symptoms estrogen per se has a huge impact on libido All right. Well, you are a wealth of information for your first time on the program. You were fabulous, Dr. Ekta <laughs> Kapoor. Thanks so much for being with Thank us. You. We've been talking about the health health challenges faced by women as they age with an endocrinologist from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Kapoor. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll dig into the problem of antibiotic resistance, and later on the show, an expert from the CDC joins us to discuss health behaviors and academic achievement. 
Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Peanut products have long been a no-no for babies, especially those at high risk of peanut allergies. Dr. Gerald Volchek says the LEAP study has changed recommendations for when peanut products should be introduced into babies' diets. After evaluation and testing, the babies were divided into two groups. One group was exposed to peanuts starting at a very early age, between 4 and 11 months, and continued up to age 5. And then the other group completely avoided the peanut until age 5. And they found the likelihood of peanut allergy was much, much lower in the group that ate peanut from infancy to age five on a regular basis. The group that avoided peanuts had a higher incidence of peanut allergy. We think it has to do with kind of a desensitization process. Parents should talk to their health care providers before giving peanut products to young children and never give whole nuts to kids under four years old because they could choke. And in other news, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, is a chronic inflammatory lung disease that causes obstructed airflow from the lungs. Symptoms include breathing difficulty, cough, mucus production, and wheezing. It's caused by long-term exposure to irritating gases or particulate matter, most often from cigarette smoke. People with COPD are at increased risk of developing heart disease, lung cancer, and a variety of other conditions. Emphysema and chronic bronchitis are the two most common conditions that contribute to COPD. Now, COPD is treatable. With proper management, most people with COPD can achieve good symptom control and quality of life, as well as reduce risk of other associated conditions. Now, again, in the vast majority of cases, the lung damage that leads to COPD is caused by long-term cigarette smoking. But there are likely other factors, such as a genetic susceptibility to the disease, because only about 20 to 30 percent of smokers may develop COPD. Other irritants can cause COPD, including cigar smoke, secondhand smoke, pipe smoke, air pollution, and workplace exposure to dust, smoke, or fumes. Talk to your health care provider if you have symptoms of COPD. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, since the 1940s, when antibiotics were invented, Antibiotics have been used to treat patients with bacterial infections, everything from TB to strep throat to STD, sexually transmitted diseases. And there is no question that antibiotics have saved a lot of lives over the past 70 years. But now we got a new problem. Oh, boy. Antibiotics have been used so widely, so often, and for so long that the bacteria are adapting. They're Mm. outfoxing the antibiotics. This sounds like a science fiction thriller. (laughs) It's worse than that. You got that right. The more exposure to the drugs, the more survival tricks the bacteria developed, creating antibiotic-resistant infections. Here to discuss antibiotic resistance is infectious disease expert, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Tosh. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You said this is the first topic that we ever discussed with you many years ago. Yes. But I bet it's a little bit more interesting. You got a little more skin in the game at this point, because at that point, you were not a father, and now you have a baby, and are you like, oh, we can't give that baby antibiotics. I actually am. Yeah. He, uh, 
That's the, hard for parents oh, when the baby gets sick. Me. Yeah, I'm sure uh, it is. So I, was, you know, I, I sort of, in, in my practice, I see a lot of really resistant infections. And we're also seeing uh, other outcomes related to antibiotics. And you know, people have started talking about obesity and allergies and things like that, where you start clearing out the normal microflora. Like, huh, there might be more to it than just antibiotic resistance. But that's not why I'm here. <laughs> so, so, so tell us why yeah. the problem uh, developed and why it's getting worse. Yeah, why, and, what's happened? So something you had mentioned that antibiotics were invented in the 1940s. So we like to think that uh, Alexander Fleming invented penicillin, uh, but actually penicillium, the mold, invented penicillin uh, millions of years ago and has been trying to outfox bacteria since then, long before humans were even thinking about coming down from trees. And so they created antibiotics and and just at the same time, uh, these bacteria were creating antibiotic resistance. So these resistance mutations have existed for millennia, in usually in sort of DNA capsules, you know, plasmids, these sort of things. And you know, very rarely do you actually expose a bacteria to antibiotics and it becomes resistant. Usually what happens is you give antibiotics and you sort of select for what we call clonal expansion the strains that already contain the antibiotic resistance. And so this resistance exists in nature. So it's been a race that's been going on since the time began. Right. And in 1940... When penicillin came yeah. along, ooh, we pulled ahead. We pulled ahead. For <laughs> and now bacteria is catching up. Yeah, except the bacteria had a million-year head start in this race. <laughs> okay. We kept, if you will, we kept reinventing the wheel, right? So we, we gave penicillin, then we started to see penicillin-resistant bacteria. Then we invented things like methicillin to treat those uh, penicillin-resistant. Then we found, well, then there's methicillin-resistant. Then we created vancomycin to you know treat those methicillin-resistant. And so it's a lot of these resistance, and probably all of the resistance has existed in nature since well before we actually identified the, the antibiotics. In fact, you, they, they found these caves where there's been no humans, and you look for the bacteria there, and they have antibiotic resistant mechanisms in place because, well, they've been competing with all the other flora that are producing antibiotics. And so we are just sort of accelerating the clonal expansion of these resistant bacteria. Yeah, but you know, what do we do about this? I think is what, what yeah. does overprescribing have to do with all this? Yeah, so that's where it comes to. There's a few different aspects of this. Is that a lot of the problem we're, we're dealing with is related to you know this expansion, right? And how do you stop this expansion of these bacterial strains? And one is really make sure you're using antibiotics appropriately. Uh, and a lot of the antibiotics that are used are really either misused or overused. Uh, people are getting antibiotics for colds, um, and things that really aren't bacterial in nature. All right, so for our listeners, give us a list of infections that are most commonly caused by a virus and don't need to be treated with an antibiotic. Most commonly an upper respiratory infection, uh, you know, sneezing, coughing, that sort of thing, uh, things like a cold, but also most sore throats are also, also usually caused by viruses. Uh, occasionally it can be caused by a streptococcus, a, you know, strep throat. A bacteria. A bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, that would yeah, get better with antibiotics, but for the most part, these are things that... Ear infection? So it looks like even though ear infections uh, can occasionally be caused by bacteria, a lot of them are related to viruses. And so even in children who get ear infections, it looks like you don't need antibiotics. Even uh, your sweet times. baby. Even yeah. my sweet baby. I've been, <laughs> I've been uh, managing to avoid them. Uh, Sinus infections? A lot of sinus infections, same thing. Thank you. Um, uh, where a lot of these are viral, and even if sometimes if they are bacterial, your body 
you know, can get rid of most of them on their own. So really, if only you have these fevers and these symptoms for several days, would antibiotics really be indicated? The flu? Do antibiotics do anything for the flu? Uh, so influenza itself, no, antibacterials okay. do not help, although we do have antivirals for influenza. All right. Well, that's a pretty good list. Well, what about um, when you do get a prescription for an antibiotic? I know one of the things that yeah. you said is that you have to take all of that antibiotic. Is that still the line of thinking, or tell us why? Yeah, I do want people to uh, follow the instructions of their provider. Um, I do also want their providers to use uh, sort of newer evidence in terms of the duration of therapy. We're finding out that you, know, you don't need two weeks of antibiotics to treat even pneumonia. Often, you know, five, seven days would be enough. Um, and so, yes, I want people to take the advice of their doctors. So I read an article recently that just to, on this subject that said that you don't necessarily, I mean, they, they always used to say if you've got a 10-day course of antibiotics, don't quit at seven. But now there's some evidence that maybe if you are all better at seven days, you ought to stop it. Yeah, it also depends uh, on what that person is, what the provider is prescribing. If they're recommending 10 days and, you know, and you really you should have been recommended seven, then yeah, stopping at seven makes good sense. So it's something I, I would encourage people to follow the advice of their provider and finish things. But I also want providers to pay attention to what sort of new recommendations are in terms of the duration of these antibiotics. So what, what are the chances that one of these superbugs, yeah. these uh, drug-resistant bacteria, is going to wipe us all out? <laughs> wow. Hold on, let everybody do just finish their coffee and set the coffee mug down. Now tell us. We, I mean, I'm seeing more and more antibiotic resistant bacteria. Yeah, it's worrisome, isn't it? It's very worrisome. Um, and you know, to the point where I've seen several infections that uh, we have no antibiotics that would be pre- pre- predicted to help. And then we are suddenly in the pre-antibiotic era. Like you dust off the old books and, you know, oh, this person who had some sort of skin infection, now we got to get a surgeon with a knife to, you know, cut this out because we have nothing else. Um, and so, yeah, we, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big concern. It's sort of been a slow-moving pandemic uh, because it's occurred sort of gradually over decades. Well, we've talked about then uh, not getting antibiotics when you're ill. I know you've mentioned with us in the past then another way, thing to consider, and we're running out of time, but is the antibiotics that are in our food, is it mm-hmm. are they equally important or is the overprescription of antibiotics more important? So, so this is all related. And uh, bacteria, as I mentioned earlier, they have these sort of uh, preformed resistance mechanisms, and they can actually exchange those, you know, like a deck of cards or something. Mm. And so the more uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria that are around and connecting with human uh, humans, and these, even if it's a bug that's not usually adapted to humans, it can exchange these resistant mechanisms with the bacteria that are adapted to humans. So overall, you know, we need to decrease our error antibiotic use, not just in humans, but you know, throughout. You know, we'd like to have, have you stay and talk, but you know what? We want you to go back to the lab and find an antibiotic that will take care of these resistant bacteria. Oh, really appreciate, yeah, really appreciate you being with us. Dr. Pratish Tosh, Infectious Disease Specialist, Mayo Clinic. Thanks. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from a CDC expert on how health behaviors and academic achievement go hand in hand. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Doda. Dennis, nice to have you with us here today. I always learn something when I fill in, so I'm glad to be here. Isn't it the truth? If you could just remember everything you learned on this program. Volumes. <laughs> a recent Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that high school students who had poor grades are more likely to try risky health behaviors than students who get better grades. The report showed that regardless of sex race, or grade level, high school students who reported lower academic marks also reported greater health risk behaviors. Substance use, violence, poor nutrition, sexual activity, and lack of physical activity. So really an interesting glimpse at the young people of our country. And naturally, we'd like to know what the results mean for schools, what they might mean for parents. And joining us on the phone, we are lucky to have from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one of the lead authors of the report, Dr. Catherine Raspberry. And Dr. Raspberry is a health scientist in the CDC's Division of Adolescent and school health. Dr. Raspberry, thanks so much for joining us from Atlanta. Thank you. So uh, we fortunately were able to review and look at this uh, study, found it extremely interesting. What prompted you to do the study? Well, there's a lot of research that exists in the field that looks at the relationship between health and academic achievement, but there hadn't been any very recent studies with national data. So in this new study, we were able to use data from the 2015 cycle of the Youth Risk Behavior Survey to look at a wide variety of health risk behaviors and academic achievement. So specifically, in terms of academic achievement, we were looking at grades in school, so things like mostly A's, mostly B's, C's, D's, F's, that sort of thing. How many people were included in the scope of your study? So the 2015 cycle of the YRBS included 15,624 students in grades 9 through 12. Well, we obviously want to know what you found, but can you tell us what surprised you the most, if anything? Well, I'll say these findings were very much in line with what we had seen in previous studies, and they really highlight the close connection between health and academic achievement. But this study is particularly important because it is based on the most up-to-date national data and because in most cases the relationships that it shows between health and academic success were statistically very strong. Give us some of the major takeaways from the study, if you would, please. Sure. So generally speaking, this really confirms, like we said, that health and academic achievement go hand in hand. As you'd mentioned earlier, regardless of sex or race, race and ethnicity, grade level, students who reported lower grades experienced greater health risks on a variety of factors from nutrition and physical activity to substance use and sexual risk behaviors and even violence and suicide-related behaviors. So I'll give you a couple of examples of those. Students who reported receiving mostly Ds and Fs were nine times more likely than students who received mostly As to report that they had ever injected any illegal drugs. Similarly, we saw that students with mostly Ds and Fs were four times more likely than students with mostly As to say that they had had four or more sexual partners. And again, those types of findings extended even to the topics like nutrition and physical activity. So, for example, we saw that students with mostly A's, so higher grades, were twice as likely as students with mostly D's and F's to say that they had had breakfast every day for the past week. So across this wide range of behaviors, we see very consistently that the, um, the higher grades are reported with better health behaviors, lower grades are associated, excuse me, with poorer 
health behaviors. I guess in a way this isn't too surprising, is it, really? It's Like I said, it's very much aligned with what we've seen in previous research. And, and what about uh, the correlation with, with parents uh, and parenting? We did not specifically look at parents in this study. The YRBF does not include data from parents. But we do know that parents have a really important role in helping the health and academic success of the youth. So we know that engaged parents can help guide their children successfully through school. We know that they often speak up for their children to make sure that they get the experiences and resources and services they they need. And they can do a lot to help schools create healthier school environments. In what ways might that be up to the school or be an opportunity for the school to improve the situation? So we really recommend the use of a model called the whole school, whole community, and whole child model. And that focuses on a child's cognitive, physical, social, and emotional development to help improve both health and learning in schools. And that model reflects an important role for parents to be engaged in shaping all types of health processes that happen in the school for youth. So everything from the physical activity and health education curriculum to what's served in the cafeteria. So it covers a wide range of pieces of environment in the school. Do you think that there is a way, and I suspect you're working on this, a way for the the CDC to help these kids achieve better grades and improve their health behaviors? And if so, how, how how do you go about doing that? Well, the CDC actually does a lot to help schools work on um, the health of youth in their schools. We believe that schools really have an opportunity to improve student health and simultaneously support their overarching educational goals. So we have a number of resources that are available for schools and school staff to help them with this. We have data. We have a lot of data, actually. (laughs) We have data on student health behaviors, but we also collect data on the health and safety policies and programs that are in place in schools. In addition to that, we have analysis tools that school staff and their communities can use to look at their health and physical education curricula and make choices about selecting and um, implementing curricula that's particularly strong. We also have trainings and professional development that's available for school staff. We have materials on increasing parent engagement and student connectedness, as well as materials on local wellness policies and bullying policies and other other sorts of supports for students. Did this allow you to conclude that one of the goals is, is a priority over the other, such as improving grades first or trying to improve the socioeconomic situation of the students first so that subsequently their grades would then come up? So I think that gets a little bit to the idea of sort of does one of these behaviors come before the other. Right. And I'll say that in our study – we simply confirmed that the two behavior that the two things are related. So health behaviors are absolutely related to grades. Our study wasn't able to look at causation because of the nature of the data that we use. But we do know from other research that many factors influence health and many factors influence academic achievement. So the two are definitely related. And generally speaking, the body of scientific evidence on health and education shows us that causal relationships can go both ways between those two things. So that is to say that better health can lead to better education outcomes and better education outcomes can lead to better health. Well, it makes a lot of sense. Now, will there be a way for you to measure that uh, what you are doing is helping these kids? So we actually do help schools in, in some instances. 
um, evaluate their programs, but that's not covered within the scope of this particular study. Interesting to say the least. And, and basically the bottom line is that health behaviors and academic achievement go hand in hand, as you've said. Absolutely. Dr. Catherine Raspberry, uh, we've been talking about health behaviors and academic achievement. She is from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks again, Dr. Raspberry. Thank you. And that is our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.